please keep your Bibles open. We'll be going through that passage quite minutely. Victor Hugo's classic story, Les Miserables, has had a very long and successful life as a musical and was also a recent BBC TV series. Its central character, as you may know if you've seen it in either form, is a criminal named Jean Valjean who, under the very harsh laws of that time, has spent decades in prison for stealing bread to feed a starving child. He's eventually released on parole after 20 years, breaks it, lodges for the night with an old bishop. He steals the bishop's silver and he runs, but when he's hauled back by the guards, the bishop amazes everybody by saying that he gave it to him. And this is the beginning of a massive transformation in his life. Once the guards have gone, the bishop tells him that he has to use it to become honest. What he tells the puzzled thief is this, I have bought your soul for God. And so years pass, Valjean does indeed become honest, but a policeman called Javert is always on his tail, forcing him to go on the run again, refusing to believe that he's changed for the better. Valjean has to stay at liberty, he can't just surrender because he's keeping a promise to care for a child whose mother had died. Finally, in the midst of a revolution, Javert is captured by the rebels and and Valjean has a chance to get rid of him forever. But he's a Christian now, and so here's the difference. He doesn't take revenge, he lets him go. Fires into the air, pretends he's shot him, cuts his bonds, lets him run. And so Javert can't process this at all, the confusion in his mind between the law and somebody who he saw as being irredeemable, being so redeemed, is so intense that he completely breaks down and eventually takes his own life. But what has transpired in Valjean's life, especially his final refusal to take vengeance, when it would have been so easy for him to do so, is a picture of what Jesus wants to teach us in this part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus wants to challenge us about how we think about people who might have persecuted us and about how we measure justice and retribution. And so when Jesus once again says, you have heard it said, we can see that once again he's calling out a rabbinic interpretation of the law, which had given this phrase, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, a license for revenge that it was never meant to have. Eye for eye and tooth for tooth is probably one of the most quoted ever scriptures. It's one of those that people know even if they've never opened the Bible in their lives, but perhaps one of the least properly understood. It has the perhaps dubious honour of being Donald Trump's favourite Bible verse. But when this phrase appears in the Old Testament, the context each time is very much not one of vengeance. And the crux is Deuteronomy 19, where the context is that an act of perjury has been attempted. And if what's being attested is proven by a proper judicial investigation, then it's administered as a legal punishment, not as a private vendetta. 
Likewise, Exodus 21, again, ties the usage of this to a specific circumstance, injury to people, and specifically of a pregnant woman. And again, it's under the proper control of law. It's also keeping punishment proportional, something that fits the crime, not allowing free-for-all revenge, or that in anger we respond to offences with an undue harshness. A tooth for a tooth is a like for a like. And so, although it had been allowed to be interpreted harshly, at the heart of it is a proper, merciful and legal justice that avoids punishment being excessive and in actual fact was often in practice meted out in monetary compensation rather than in bodily mutilation. And God's law is also equal for all. Exodus 21 also talks about fair compensation for slaves. By contrast, a little bit before the time of Moses, an ancient Babylonian law code made by a king named Hammurabi um, sets a distinction between injuring rich or poor. Hurt a rich man and you pay with a body part. Hurt a peasant, hey, they're just pond life. A third of a coin is enough. But see, God's law is different. It cares for everybody. And so even now, this law of Moses for us now belongs to the past and has an element of capital punishment that today we've left behind. It challenges some norms of the ancient world to show a better way. And in just the same way, the gospel, especially the Sermon on the Mount that we've been looking at together, often goes against the grain of our world. Can we take a challenge from it then, as well as what God wants to teach us about vengefulness, that God's ways are right and best for us, however much they go against the norms of our time? And so, having denounced the incorrect use of eye for eye and tooth for tooth, which is, in the end, proportional and legal, not vengeful. It's as the opposite of that wrong meaning that Jesus talks to us about turning the other cheek and not resisting the evil person. And so this is, again, working out on a personal level. It's not a mandate for a blanket pacifism. The Bible nowhere teaches that. It might be right sometimes to ask whether a war is just and great Christian thinkers such as Aquinas have wrestled with this in ways that perhaps bear thinking about but we know that sadly war is not always avoidable. Nor is this an absence of law and order. The Russian writer Leo Tolstoy took not resisting evil so literally that he said a country should have no police and no law courts. Clearly that's only going to lead to anarchy, so clearly that's not what this is about either. The rule of law, the rightful redress of wrongs, still matters. In Romans, Paul warns the church that if they do wrong, they will be subject to the secular authorities that God has put in place. Scripture is also clear that God cares deeply about justice 
and that we need to strive for justice and pray for justice in our world and in our nation and that we need to stand on our faith. Being hit on the cheek with the back of the hand is something that would be an insult rather than a serious injury. We can remember how in the Beatitudes Jesus has challenged us that we are blessed when people insult and slander us because of him. And so just before Jesus goes on to challenge us to love our enemies, what this is about is a challenge about attitudes and that while striving for what is right, where we can resist evil without violence. Paul tells us in Romans 12, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And very often, God's redressing of evil is in the end through the process of law, flawed and corrupt as it may sometimes be because we're fallen humans, so our human institutions are not going to be perfect. But we have to know too that whatever is not redressed in this world will be addressed in the next. And it helps us to see people who might have hurt us as God wants us to see them and to pray for them and to strive to forgive them if we remember that God wants no one to perish but all to repent and come to him and find life, that we are all made in God's image and that all of us have been saved from God's eternal wrath by grace. A lot of you will know that I work in a prison. I've never been in trouble with the law, but I work in a place that holds people who's done all sorts of things. Yet between them and me or you, what's the difference in our need of God's grace and mercy? As hard as it might be to swallow sometimes, the answer is, in the end, nothing. The human need for Christ's redemption is the equaliser of us all. William Wilberforce, the anti-slavery campaigner, and Martin Luther King, the civil rights leader, were both people who fought great social evils very actively, but also without violence and without hatred. Both endured massive insults and slanders and oppositions. Both, as we know, won their fights, though it cost Martin Luther King his life. In a prison cell, he wrote, love is the only force that can turn an enemy into a friend. And as we approach the season of Lent, which Rob referred to briefly, may we also perhaps remember the insults hurled at Jesus as he suffered for our salvation. 
Recently, Premier Christianity magazine launched a campaign called Stop Christophobia, which called on our government to halt marginalisation of Christian voices and concerns, and also to speak out more against countries where Christians are enduring persecution, something always worth finding out and praying about. And so all of these were campaigns that needed to be fought. It's not wrong to oppose social evil. That's never what this passage is teaching us. It's not wrong to stand on our faith. But we have to do so without hatred, without bitterness, without vengefulness, without violence. And so in the light of all of this, Jesus goes on to talk about the tunic and the second mile. And in a verse that talks about us being sued for our tunic, we might remember from previous weeks how back in verse 25, Jesus challenged us about settling disputes and resolving debts with people as quickly as we can. But perhaps there's something else too. Way back in Exodus, the law commanded that if a cloak was taken as a legal pledge, it must be returned because it's someone's only covering. But here, there's a challenge to give it up. So here's what Jesus is asking us here. Will we do more than we have to do to resolve a situation? And can resolution be more important to us than all of our rights? Likewise, being forced to go a mile would have meant something very real to Jews living in a country occupied by the Romans. Anyone could be minding their own business and suddenly they'd be commandeered to help the army. You carry that baggage two miles from there to there. Again, as we approach the season of Lent and the passion story that we'll remember in that time, The story of Simon of Cyrene, an innocent bystander in the crowd, suddenly made to help Jesus carry his cross. That was an all-too-common reality. So again, we're at work or at school or wherever we are. What's our attitude when we have to do things that we don't want to do? Again, not something morally wrong, not something that's blatantly unjust, not something that's going to put us in danger and not something that compromises our faith, but just something we really don't want to do. And so, following all of that, comes in verse 42, the challenge about giving and lending. As with everything Jesus has said so far in our passage, it's about wanting good for people. It's not preventing us from using wisdom. Giving somebody something that might harm them is not acting for their good. But it's challenging us, again, not to be just people who don't want to help others. And so finally then, having challenged us about eye for eye and tooth for tooth and about how we deal with evil, comes another challenge. Love your enemies. Pray for them. Again, this was a bit of the law that had got corrupted along the way. The law commanded love of neighbour, and so the logical opposite seemed to be that you hated your enemies. But that was never the law, that was never God's intention. And when he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus challenges this assumption head on. 
The Jews and Samaritans were at religious and political loggerheads, but it's the unclean Samaritan who's the better person. Now imagine a people occupied by the Roman forces who have enslaved them, taken away their political autonomy, desecrated their temple, ruthlessly destroyed anyone who rises up against them, being told to love and pray for their enemies. Pray for the Roman soldiers who are persecuting you. During World War II, the German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer led what was known as the Confessing Church in Germany, which spoke out against Nazi evil. He eventually became involved in a plot to kill Hitler and struggled deeply with whether that could be reconciled with Christ's teaching here. But he challenged the church to pray in earnest for these sons of perdition, as he called them, which is the Nazis, who, he said, have perhaps already raised their hands to kill us. He went on to say, the church that is really waiting for its Lord will fling itself with its utmost power into this prayer of love. Likewise, a lot of you may be familiar with the story of Corrie ten Boom, a Dutch woman whose family hid Jews from the Nazis. She endured imprisonment in a concentration camp, was luckier than many and survived it, and for the rest of her life preached the gospel of God. Suddenly in church, she's face to face with one of her old Nazi guards. He's repented, he's full of smiles, he's found God's mercy, he's become a Christian, and he comes up and says, God has forgiven me, will you forgive me too? So here's the test. Every inch of her is full of revulsion. Every inch of her doesn't want to do this. But slowly and painfully, she manages to do it. And she says, the one who gives the command also gives the power. And it's by doing all this, Jesus tells us, that we show whose sons we are. Children of the God who shines on the good and the evil, who sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And we remember here, don't we, that righteousness is more than just doing what's right. It's the state that's been gifted to us by God because all of us are unrighteous before him until Christ makes us righteous by faith in his redemption. And so God wants to show his power and love through us to each other and to those who haven't yet received that gift so that they can know him. And that's one reason why we can't just love those who love us. And finally, we're told that the goal of all of this is that we will be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. Now we know that in one sense we won't be perfect until we're in eternity. But in another sense, perfection here is a Greek word, telos, that speaks of fulfilling a purpose in a way that a tool like a screwdriver has a definite purpose. And so that purpose for us is to be God's children in all the fullness of his life and his New Testament kingdom 
enjoying, proclaiming, showing him. And so Jesus has given us many practical challenges here, but perhaps also challenged us about how we see justice and mercy and vengeance, both institutionally and more so in our own lives, because that's what this is really about. As something that is proportional, not vengeful, properly administered, not by private retribution, and which is not scared to resist evil in the right ways, and which, in the end, always seeks people's good. And not everyone is going to react to this like Jean Valjean did. But maybe God is asking us, will we do it? Because he knows it's right for us. And also perhaps because it reflects the person of Christ in whose sacrifice, justice and mercy meet for our redemption. And so this is his challenge to us because this is how his kingdom society needs to work because he wants to reach out to people, because we are all children of his grace, and because, as John MacArthur once wrote, if the church is just like the world, it has, in the end, nothing different to offer it.